We are live. Hello, Carolyn. Good morning, Avi. How are you today? Good. Good morning. Very well. How are you? Good. Chodesh Tov. Chodesh Tov. We're starting the new month of Mar Cheshvan. How were the holidays? The month of holidays. You know, they were great, and it's great that they're done. <laughs> you know, now we get to go back to work. But it's good to have you back in my dining room that isn't filled with. Uh, you know, hundreds of pots and pans and foods and salads. So yeah, how'd you do with the cooking? It was over overwhelming. It was, it was a bit overwhelming, yes. But like I said, it's good that they were here, and it's good that they're gone. And now we get back to the routine of work and kids and school and work and kids and school and and everything's good. And and to the routine of no government in Israel, but we'll get to that Let's in a second. Let's get to that in a second. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about Noel Baghdadi. That's right, like no ISIS leader. The U. What, what you, you mentioned there is what is the significance of this? U.S. killing of yeah, ISIS leader. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of really important implications of what happened. And I just want to focus on a couple, okay? Because I don't think, it's, it's not like there's just one thing, okay, now the war is over, the way that the Obama administration lied and pretended that the, uh, that the assassination of bin Laden before the 12 elections was somehow or another, you know, that was the hit that was going to end all of the jihad. Um, but this was important, and it was important to kill Obama, Osama bin Laden as well, because they're heads, they're leaders, right? And so you get rid of them. You know, there's this whole um, there's this whole debate in the West. We have it in Israel regarding uh, the targeted killings of Hamas leaders. Right. Um, you have it. You're seeing it in the U.S. media playing out about al Baghdadi um, and and beyond. Uh, talking about is it important or not to uh, assassinate to kill the leaders of your of, of enemy forces, and uh, you know there's and so a lot of people are arguing and have argued. Well, a they'll just be replaced by somebody Correct. else, and so who cares because you go to all this trouble to kill the leader, and then you know somebody is appointed to replace them. So what did you do? You just spent all of this money and all of this time and energy trying to get something done that really, you know, so now there's a new head of Hamas, or now there's a new head of ISIS, and so on and so forth. And then on the, but, but you can't, but that point, while true, ignores something. Yes, but you got rid of him. And now all of them know, all of these terror leaders, all of these enemy leaders know that they're in your target sites. Right. And that is important in and of itself. Your enemy knows, your enemy forces, the societies that support them, that they're not invincible, that people who are describing themselves as somehow or another closer to God than the rest of us are not, and they're mere mortals. And so you're taking a very big pin and you're blowing up a very big balloon and that's important you're demoralizing the other side and you're weakening them because you have to assume that folks like Baghdadi and Osama bin Laden have intrinsic importance to their organizations after all they built them they led them they gave them their organizing principles and their marching orders so that getting rid of them is important. You can't discount the importance of leadership, particularly of people like Ahmed Yassin who founded Hamas right. or al-Baghdadi who founded ISIS or Osama bin Laden who founded al-Qaeda. These are important people to kill and it's good uh, to do so. Another aspect of it that I think is important, and this gets into a larger point, is that you see a lot of criticism, Mike Morrell, the former director, uh, CIA, uh, the former deputy director of the CIA, and maybe director, I can't remember anymore, under Obama, was on one of the Sunday programs in the United States attacking 
attacking Trump for describing in graphic detail how he died like a dog. Right. Right. And then Trump, I thought, uh, reasonably and also importantly, put up a picture of of a German Shepherd or of the a dog of, of the dog that he claims killed El Baghdadi. And so everybody can go into a tizzy and say, "Oh my God, this is terrible! How he's embarrassing them, he's humiliating." But that's just the point. Exactly. So that since 9/11, we've had we've been really led by this crazy idea that just like it's not important to get rid of the head of your enemy forces, it's also very important not to embarrass your enemy, which I think is, it's insipid. I mean, it's, it's, it's pure nonsense. Of course you want to. Why? They say, oh, it's just going to make them more angry. ISIS is a barbaric organization that is dedicated to annihilating humanity. They burn people alive in cages. They behead people in front of cameras and post it on YouTube. They are, I mean, they're animals. You know, they are, they're not animals. It's an insult Worse. to animals. You know, I got, I got animals in there. I've got two dogs. They're nothing like that. Uh, and these are the cruelest creatures on the face of the planet, these ISIS uh, jihadists. All right. And so when you humiliate, so you can't get any worse than they are. Like by definition, these are genocidal slavers, uh, maniacal murderers, right? I mean, this is what they are. And all in the name of God, all in the name of Allah, all in the name of global conquest, annihilation of the Christians, of the Yazidis, of the Jews, of all of the Muslims that they disagree with. I mean, they are... That's a very important point that you say. It's also Muslims they disagree with. It's not just non-Muslims. Right. I mean, but you know, it's basically humanity, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody, women, you know, enslavement of children, child slavery. I mean, there's literally nothing horrible that you can imagine. Cruelty to animals uh, that they didn't already do. So when you talk about, oh, we're just going to inflame them, what planet do you live on? Did you not just see this phenomenon, this crazed lunatic phenomenon? Right. I mean, are, are you nuts? You can't get more extreme. So what happens when you say... Oh, we tore him apart with dogs. You know, he was killed whimpering. He killed his children with him. You're, um, you're shaming them. You're shaming them and you're taking away their ability to continue to believe, at least to believe with such uh, indignation and uh, self-assurance that God is on their side. And you're saying that this guy who said that he was the imam, that he was the caliph, that he is second only to Muhammad in this world, that he is God on earth. He was torn apart by dogs. Deal with it. You know, we, he's not buried. And that goes to, you know, so Morel was attacking it and talking about how and other former Obama administration officials were, were parroting the same line, which was crazy when they said it while they're in office, and it's equally crazy now, that no, 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 we went to all, you know, to great lengths to give Osama bin Laden a proper Islamic burial, and we did the right thing, and he's doing the right thing. So that's the exact opposite of right. the truth. Right. The decision to uh, respect the body of Osama bin Laden was a huge mistake. And the funny thing is that they knew what they were doing. How do you know that they knew what they were doing? Because they, o o Obama, perhaps better than any other people around him, 
understood the implications of shame in Muslim uh, in the Muslim society as a means to show regard for one side and disrespect for the other. And how do we know? Because he went out of his way to shame Netanyahu, right? When he took a picture of himself, he had mm -hmm. the White House photographer take a picture of him during a conversation with Netanyahu where he had his feet on his desk with the soles of his shoes pointing towards the cameras. And everybody knew how to interpret this, particularly the Muslim world, that this was a sign of profound disrespect for the Prime Minister of Israel on the part of Barack Hussein Obama, President of the United States. He was signaling very clearly his contempt for Israel and for the Jewish state when he did that. So he understood what he did when he did that, and he also understood what he did when he you know, gave the five-star treatment to Osama bin Laden's body, that he was showing his respect for the jihadists um, in, that, in, in the latter case, and he was showing his contempt for the Jews in the former case. Mm -hmm. So he understood what he was doing. And when, when, uh, when Trump says that he died at the hands of dogs, right, in the jaws of a Danish shepherd, right, uh, he's saying the exact opposite. We hold these people in contempt. These people are, are contemptible. And uh, we're going to destroy them, and we're stronger than them. And by the way, our God is stronger than their God. All of these things speak directly to the, the viscera of the ISIS uh, uh, um, supporters and members. And that, you know, from, a, from the perspective of, of strategic communications, of psychological warfare, I think that the picture of the German shepherd that he posted on Twitter last night may have been more effective hmm. than any statement any U.S. official has made about radical Islam and the jihad since 9/11. I think. Wow. What, you know, I think that 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 move by Trump to put a picture of a dog on his Twitter page and say this is the hero who killed the caliph. That, I mean, and so they say, oh, this is going to inflame them. Again, who are you talking about? I mean, remember the massacre in Bataclan? You know, remember the massacre in the Pulse Night uh, Club in, in Orlando? Remember uh, the massacre in Charlie Hebdo and in Hypercacher? And obviously, remember the enslavement of the Yazidi women, the slaughter of the, of the Yazidi men, the uh, mobilization of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the Yazidi boys to be child soldiers and suicide bombers. Remember the beheading of journalists, of Kurds, of Christians. Remember who these people are. And you talk about inflaming them as if this is a rational argument. So I think that from the strategic com uh, uh, communications perspective and from the perspective of finally at least for now, until you know a Democrat comes in or a mealy-mouthed Republican like Bush comes back into office, you're seeing an American president who is sticking a knife in the heart of the psychological makeup of the jihadists in a way that we've never seen before, and it's profoundly important. Um, aside from that, we have to understand something else, which is that 
you know, I think it, you know, it, it's the Americans after 9-11 had this, the fear of inflaming the Muslim street after they literally blew up the World Trade Center, you know, the temple to capitalism and the Pentagon, the temple to American military might. They, they had another uh, plane that they were trying to hit either the Congress or the White House, you know, the home of American democracy and politics. So this was a strategic assault against the very symbols of America at the deepest level. And the Americans responded, we mustn't insult Islam. You know, we, this isn't a war against Islam. This isn't, a, you know, and then they, they, they laundered all the words. They, you know, we're not talking about terrorism. You know, we're not talking about Islamofascism. You know, we're talking, or it's not a war against Islamofascism. They've taken it out of their training manuals. Right, the they, CIA, they, FBI. they barred anybody from using the term Islamic terrorism from the, from the training doctrines of the U.S. military, uh, intelligence, FBI, law enforcement, all counter-terror. And, and they, uh, they, tried to, they tried to pretend that this was about something else, right? It's about terrorism. This is a war on terror. Well, that's like saying, you know, it's exactly like gun control, right? It's not... It's a war on guns. It's, it's a war on guns. Well, it should be a war against people who are using guns, not for home protection, but uh, just to kill people or to scare people or whatever. Like, the, you know, illegal use of guns by... Yeah people who are wielding them. No, we're going after terrorists, terrorism, a war against terrorism. So the whole conception of American uh, doctrine for fighting radical Islam hid the actual nature of the enemy. And as a result, you know, you got these things, oh, we're going to destroy Al-Qaeda. Well, yeah, but then you're going to get ISIS. You know, you're going to, we're going to destroy this we're going to get, and, and then you pretend that that's the end. It's a secrete thing because you're not going actually after the real threat, which is, you know, state-sponsored terrorism by rogue regimes who adhere to a doctrine of Islamic imperialism that, um, um, you know, you, you, the United States for a long time was framing everything that they were doing about ISIS, about the Taliban, about Al-Qaeda, etc., in this rubricon of counterterrorism. And that's why, really, you've had the situation where, A, they ignored the nature on purpose of the, where the threat was coming from, you know, who, who the biggest threats are in, in, in the real world. It's Iran. Um, because they just wanted to focus on one thing. Oh, it was Al-Qaeda that attacked. Yes, but where did Al-Qaeda come from? You know, who trained them? Who helped them? Well, they got most of their state support, not from Saudi Arabia, but actually from Iran, where like four or five, according to the 9-11 report, of the main terrorists transited en route to the United States. There were Hezbollah allies that were involved with helping them to prepare the attacks of 9-11, and none of this was gone into because everybody just wanted to pretend that this was a specific thing, just, you know, Al-Qaeda, had nothing to do with Islam, had nothing to do with the uh, axis of evil that, that uh, Bush raised once and then he ignored for the rest of his presidency, almost the entirety of the rest of his presidency. And, you know, with Obama, of course, you know, took another 75 steps further where they didn't even want to talk about terrorism. They started calling... Uh, uh, the war on terror, which was a stupid word, to, a stupid term to begin with, overseas contingency operations. So that the whole thing, the the language was removed from 
from the mouths of the people who needed it the most, the people who were actually fighting radical Islamic, uh, radical Islam, Islamic terrorists, and you know this whole uh, network, this whole axis of Iran, of Sunni Arab states. Uh, for a long time, it was Saudi Arabia that was at the helm of it, but there were others that were also Qatar, uh, Qatar now is very much allied, and, and Turkey inside of the sort of nexus. So you, like the whole Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood. And so you're looking at the nexus of the Muslim Brotherhood and, and uh, Shiite uh, um, uh, messianism of, of the Iranian regime, and, and you're not allowed to look at that. So, you know, by killing Baghdadi, you know, the problem with it, and it's not a problem, and like I said, it's good that he was killed because he's the head of an enemy force. It's good that he was humiliated in his death as the head of an enemy concept of closeness and proximity to God. Uh, these are all important things, but it's also important to recognize that ISIS was just another placeholder in like among the Sunni jihadists right. and that to look at them as if they were something specific or distinct and it was specifically and distinctly important now that he's dead, you know, the problem has gone away with him is to ignore, you know, the larger context in which ISIS is operating. And what I'm hoping is that, you know, Trump's willingness to be candid about who, you know, about how evil Baghdadi was and how he was killed and what he represented to a certain extent will spill over into equally important willingness to, you know, um, stop talking about the enemies and the threats that the United States and the free world as a whole faces in terms of secrete groups that as if they're operating independently of overarching ideologies and also most importantly state actors that are enabling them, that are feeding them, that are, are, are giving them, are they're serving as their logistical basis. In ISIS's case, it's Turkey, um, but that they have relationships with state sponsors of terrorism and that those really are the heads of the snake. Baghdadi was the head of ISIS, but the head of his snake in many ways, goes back to Ankara and Istanbul with Erdogan, and to a, a significant degree also to Iran, which allowed them to take over the Sunni areas of Iraq and Syria, uh, so long as they kind of had a live and let live uh, relationship with the Iranian militias in Iraq and with uh, Hezbollah, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and the Syrian military in Syria. I wanted to go there, but before we go there, because I wanted to ask you specifically about that, because the, there's so many open questions dealing with the Syria and al-Baghdadi, but dealing with the media, the, the Western media, American media, in its write-up and reporting of the al-Baghdadi murder. It's not it, a murder, it's, it's a killing. Killing, thank you. The al-Baghdadi killing, um, it's gone beyond uh, sympathy. I mean, you have the Washington Post right. headline calling him an, an austere religious leader, right. not giving any inclination that this guy was evil, that of an evil regime. Is the hatred towards Trump yeah. that, that strong that they will just ignore the evil that America and the Western freedom-loving world is fighting? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I mean, one of the things that we're finding with the left in the United States, in Israel, in Europe, everywhere, is that ideology, whatever they profess to care about, uh, peace, um, you know, socialism, 
uh, what have you, they're really all vehicles towards the acquisition and retention of power at the expense of their political rivals. That, you know, all of their happy talk about the rule of law and all the rest of it, or, you know, defeating America's enemies, you know, and, and being anti-Russian. I mean, this is all just piffle. You know, this is just, this is just lies. I mean, because you see that when it comes to actual uh, policy, uh, they're nothing. You know, they're not doing anything. And all they've been trying to do since Trump came into office was, has been to unseat him, to nullify his presidency, to delegitimize him, to dehumanize him, anybody who supports him, you know. Um, I mean, you see it on every level. You saw with those high school kids who went to the pro-life march in Washington last year and were wearing Make America Great hats and then... The Washington Post, I think, yeah, the Washington Post concocted this notion that these kids, I think from Tennessee or something like this, had been mean to a, a Native American who was at the Lincoln Memorial with them. They were at the Lincoln Memorial waiting to be picked up to be, uh, you know, for their bus to come and drive them back to Tennessee. And so they were stuck there with this guy and he started harassing them, beating this drum or whatever. And they were embarrassed and they were presented to the world, to the entire American people as these horrible racists, and it was a lie. And why were they targeted? Why were they scapegoated this way? Because they were wearing Trump hats. And so, you know, from that lowest level, from that most innocent level of high school students in Washington for a march for life, uh, up to, you know, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, is coming out now, uh, all of the stories, you know, of how the Justice Department, the intelligence uh, services of the United States, the very highest level of all of these groups colluded in order to criminalize an innocent man and railroad him into a plea bargain because they were threatening to go after his son and impoverishing him with legal fees. So you see the way that this, you know, the tops of these systems, I mean, they didn't, He's a three-star general, you know. He's a former head of the DIA, of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and look at what they did to him. So, from the lowest level, from you know the most innocent lambs, these high school students who come to Washington, the National Security Advisor, and now of course to Trump, you know, this is all about the the acquisition and retention of power and the denial of both to your political enemies, who are also because they're not your enemies, they're not your rivals. That's the other thing. Who's, and, and your specific goal is to destroy them utterly and completely. So this is, you know, this is what the left is about. So inside of this campaign, which, you know, I wrote about last week in Israel Ayom, and I saw Real Clear Politics picked it up as well, or I was talking about the radicalization of the Democratic Party and what it means for Israel, which is a different issue. We're not going to touch on it, but people can read it on my website, carolynglick.com. Um, you see that, you know, given that this is what it's about, this is the unifying principle of the left in Israel or in the United States or where have you, the, the acquisition and retention of power for power's sake, to destroy your enemies and to wield that power as, in, in as uncompromising a fashion as you are able, that you can muster, um, you understand that the story of al-Baghdadi's assassination by the Delta Force and their dogs you know, uh, is very uncomfortable for the Washington Post because it's a good story. It's a good story about what Trump was doing. The Trump was, is doing his job and competently executing the office of president and that America's strong and good and that he's 
and that he's defeating America's enemies. So when you're trying to, when your whole purpose is to wage an uncompromising battle against Trump, whose purpose is his destruction and the destruction of everybody who supports him, then you don't want anybody to understand what he just did. You want to distort as much as possible uh, what just happened, which, by the way, is why, you know, I don't think I heard anybody in the squad, you know, the, 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 the furies of the, the, the anti-Semitic, anti-American furies of the Democratic Party, um, I don't, I don't remember hearing any, any uh, supportive statements or, 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 or happy statements about al-Baghdadi's uh, assassination and Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, uh, um, Chuck Schumer, all of the rest of them, you know, they, they, uh, they're basically, um, you know, they don't want to make any, any, uh, any serious uh, statements about this. They don't want to be heard congratulating anything that uh, this administration did. And I saw that the one who, to, to date, anyway, that I saw took the cake for this was Bernie Sanders, who said uh, he congratulated the Kurds and the Turks for their role in bringing down Baghdadi, and he failed to mention the U.S. military. Wow. And, and so that was... That was even more. That was sort of like, wow, wow. Let's, one. let's turn this into a Tur- Turkish-Kurdish joint mission, you know, that the Americans didn't have any role in. And that's what Bernie Sanders did. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't redound to their political benefit. That's all they care about is their political benefit and specifically their political power. And so, therefore, they want to distort the situation, distort the story, not report it. And, and get it off the headlines as quickly as possible and move on to some other nonsensical attack on Trump. Well, I, I wanted to go back to what you started talking about and help, help me square this circle. Because on the one hand, you were saying how the al-Baghdadi hit is good, the Trump administration's al-Baghdadi hit is good. Then you were mentioning that Turkey is the base for ISIS. And yet we have the Trump administration, in a sense, supporting Turkey, this, the, the supporter of ISIS, and their uh, invasion of uh, eastern Syria, okay. and keeping propping them up as a NATO ally. Okay. How do we make sense of all this? So it doesn't really, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to swallow. We have to recognize something very significant, which everybody tries to uh, sweep under the rug. And, I, and, and uh, I would be happy to sweep it under the rug, but I can't, because it's, it's, it's the center of this issue in a way, which is that Recep Erdogan, he came into power for the first time in 2002, okay, December 2002. The first thing that the Turkish parliament did after his Justice and Peace Party won the election was vote to deny the United States the right to invade Iraq from, uh, from southern right. Turkey, all right? And that screwed up everything. The Americans were caught flat-footed with that. They hadn't expected it, and it, they had to, at the at the last hour, changed their entire invasion plan. And it was, by the way, the Turkish move that allowed the Ba'athists in Iraq to regroup and reform as a regular insurgents in northern Iraq because the 4th Infantry Division, which was supposed to be coming down from Turkey, had to go all around, down through Kuwait and up again, like the 3rd Infantry Division and the Marines do, which was not the battle plan at all. So the first thing this guy did through his party, when they won the 2002 uh, parliamentary elections in Turkey, was uh, undermine the United States, all right? And in a strategic way. And since then, 
it's only gotten worse. I mean, he has a consistent record of hostility to the United States, of undermining key American strategic interests, key NATO interests, like, for instance, opening up the floodgates to a million Syrians to go in, you know, to march on Europe, right? I mean, these are very unfriendly. And continuing to use it as blackmail even today. Right. So he extorts from them economic assistance and other things by using the Syrians who are in his borders. So this guy, and obviously, you know, his incredible hostility towards Israel and towards Jews, anti-Americanism, his, his illiberalism, his tyranny at home, you know, Turkey has a great, has even more journalists in prison than the Chinese do, which is stunning because wow. China has like a hundred times more people or something like that. You know, I mean, so, you know, th- this guy is an enemy, right? But the, what is the problem? The problem is that for the past nearly 19 years, the Pentagon has simply abjectly refused to reconsider American strategic ties to, Syri- to Turkey or Turkey's uh, membership in NATO. Okay, and so they want to keep the U.S. base in Inserlik as the hub of U.S. air operations in Central Asia and in Europe and and in the Middle East. They want to keep using the you know the Turkish naval bases, which all makes sense. They don't. They haven't. They haven't found. I don't know whether they've sought, but they haven't found any replacement for these things for Turkey. They haven't figured out a way or tried, to the best of my knowledge, to uh, contain. Turkey in the Eastern Mediterranean, where Turkey continues and is constantly escalating its aggression against other NATO states and EU states and US allies, not only Israel, but uh, Greece and Cyprus. So, you know, they're doing all these things, but so long as the Pentagon, meaning the US government, right, refuses to reconsider the American alliance with Turkey and Turkey's membership in NATO, then the United States can't go to war against Turkey. I mean, they can do a lot of things, but they can't go to war against Turkey, mm-hmm. right? And, and they're not going to go to war against Turkey, not for the Kurds, not for anything. So long as Turkey is a NATO ally, it's actually illegal for them to, you know, to go to war against Turkey. They have a formal alliance. And, and then you have the issue of the Kurds, right? So now Turkey also... You know, you could say, well, they're enabling ISIS. Well, they are enabling ISIS. This is true. But ISIS here, like Al-Qaeda in Iraq, what are they? They are the Sunnis, okay? So the, you know, the, the Sunnis have been poorly represented forever, right, by terrible leaders, by the Ba'athists, by the Saudis, and the Wahhabis, by the this and that. But when you destroy the Iraqi army, in 2002, which was led by the Sunnis. Somebody's going to fill that power vacuum. And the people who fill that power vacuum in, in, in Iraq, no, in Iraq, to protect the Sunnis from the Shias was Al-Qaeda, uh. because they're Sunnis. So that the most powerful force protecting Sunnis, as Sunnis saw it in Iraq, was Al-Qaeda. And then afterwards, during the Obama administration, ISIS. So that Somebody is going to be defending the Sunnis. Somebody is going to be representing the Sunnis. And there's no way of getting around that. You know, in Iraq, I think they comprise only like 40% of the population in Syria. You know, their, their, their uh, majority of the Syrian population was gutted because of ethnic cleansing of, this, of the Sunnis. I mean, the, the, the refugees or whatever you want to call them in, in Turkey and in Europe, they're Sunnis. They're the ones who rejected, not the Alawites and 
So, you know, so Turkey, which is a jihadist state. Sunni. They're Sunnis. So who is going to be the Sunni force that they support? Are they going to support, you know, liberal Democrats who are Sunnis, you know, a la the Arab Spring and the Google Revolution or whatever and uh, the Facebook Revolution in, in Tahrir Square? Of course not. They're going to support, as they did from the beginning of the Syrian war, Muslim Brotherhood groups. They're going to support Al-Qaeda. They're going to support ISIS. They're going to support the Muslim Brotherhood. They're going to support jihadist militias because that's what Turkey is. So on the one hand and on the other hand, now when you see this as part of an overall struggle between Sunnis and Shiites in the Middle East, then you realize that whatever you call ISIS, whatever you call the Sunni force at any given moment, they're there because there is a constituency, so to speak. There's a population that is in need of protection. And somebody's going to protect them. And who are they protecting them against? And that's the other thing. Are they protecting them against America? No, not really. They're protecting them against Iran, which is also America's enemy. So in, in a way, and the Kurds here are allied not with the Sunni jihadists, with Iran. but with the Shiite jihadists. So that the Kurds are actually allied with Iran and with, you know, uh, Russia, against the Sunni jihadists. All Kurds or just the, or some Kurds, especially those in Eastern Syria? The YPG, the YPG that the United States used as their proxy force. Now, I I wrote about this. It's obviously incredibly convoluted. Yeah, very complicated. But the most important thing to realize is that when you see this guck, right, of competing jihadist forces that are fighting for power and control in the Arab world, in the, in the nations surrounding Israel and in nations further afield, that you don't have any real allies in this fight. And you know, what you have to, what you have to play for are a couple of things. Your strategic moves here have to be very um, secrete. Because you don't want, I mean, you do not want to be embroiled and siding with one of these sides against the other because they're all bad. And having American forces fighting ISIS had a modicum of importance to it because they were beheading American journalists and, and, you know, enslaving American uh, relief workers and killing them. So it's important in that in that regard and that's good but it, when you fight the sunnis in, in in syria you're empowering the shiites in syria you're empowering iran so when you fight isis and only fight isis then you're giving iran a green light to take over the country which you don't want because iran is your enemy so i think to a certain degree that what i think from a strategic perspective that by leaving Syria, you know, because it wasn't like there were 100,000 American forces in Syria, there were 1,000 forces in Syria, you're letting them fight it out. Like Sarah Palin said once, you know, let them fight each other and Allah will decide who wins, you know? And, 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 you know there's, and then in the same time, when you have strategic interests that you want to pursue there, like for instance, the United States is still protecting the oil fields 
in uh, northern Syria because they don't want Russia to take over those fields. That's a strategic play. Because if Russia takes over the fields in northern Syria, then they're going to be able to pay for their deployment there. And the United States wants to deny the Russians economic reward for taking such a major role in the Syrian war. They, they don't, they, Russia can stay there for as long as they want, but at the end of the day, it's bankrupting them. So how long is this going to be sustainable? Who knows? But, what, but America's decision to protect the oil fields is a strategic move that specifically advances American strategic interests. It, it, it protects those interests in denying Russia the economic fruits of its war. And that's, that's something that is a specific American interest, which is why it makes sense for the United States to continue to secure it. Um, but to say we want to fight with the Shiites, which is what Obama did, against the Sunnis, or what Bush did, you know, we want to fight with the Shiites in Iraq against the Sunnis, these are moves, and you do it because you have this shiny object in front of your face called Al-Qaeda or ISIS or whatever, and say, oh, that's the mm -hmm. biggest threat because they're, you know, they're, they're beheading journalists or whatever. There's a whole chessboard here and there are a lot of pieces and most of them are really lousy and you don't want to get embroiled in a chess game between enemy forces you want to be on top of that board and you want to be picking and choosing your battles and your goals to keep them both down to keep your territory and allies secure and to and to uh preserve your position in the in the larger Middle East. And I think that that's what Trump's move achieves. He's done it in an incredibly ham-fisted way. He managed to really anger and demoralize a lot of people who otherwise support him, which was stupid politically. And what I, was stupid it, The way that he just sort of announced it and opened uh, himself up to incredible acrimony and anger on the part of people who actually support him in the Republican Party and even probably in his administration, you know, people who really didn't understand. And it's like I, I'm trying to explain it, and this is what I do for a living. You know, right. I'm not a real estate guy. And it's still hard to follow what I'm saying, right? right? So he had to figure out, and he didn't. I think it would have been much better if he had been able to figure out a way to explain this, to prepare the ground for it. I mean, he's been saying since January that he wants to leave Syria, but he didn't do it. And he had, ostensibly, 10 months to make the case to the Americans that, you know, this one is horrible and that one's terrible and we don't want to get sucked into this anymore. or We want to get out and just worry about our things. I think the Baghdadi raid showed that that's what he's after. But still, the case has to be made in a more coherent fashion. So um, we want to go to talk to about, President, about Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Last sum up question, which you basically answered, but I just want to sum it up in a, in a soundbite type of way. Smart, was President Trump's move pull out 50, Trump, 50 troops from eastern Syria a smart strategic move or bad and uh, election uh, driven? If it was election driven, then it was really stupid because it got Republicans angry with him. And you don't ever want to mess with your base when you're going into a, uh, an election year. At the same time, it shored up part of their Republican base, which is 
you know, just sort of isolationist, we hate everybody, you know, let's pull anchor on the world and run away to Fortress America, which of course worked out so well in Pearl Harbor, it worked out so well on 9-11, and, and anyway, you know, it just, it's like, just let's just deny everything that's self-evident about the way things work in this world, right? But whatever. So he shored up that side of his base, but he messed with, a, I think, probably a slightly larger section of his base that doesn't feel that way. So I think from a political perspective, it was also ham-fisted. But I think, again, from a strategic perspective, 50 soldiers along the uh, border between Turkey and Syria that are putting the United States in danger of going to war against Turkey on behalf of the Kurds who are all the time making side deals with the Russians and the Iranians while they're working with the Americans. There's nobody good here. On the other hand, one thing that, but so get out. You know, there, you look to your right, you see problems. You look to your left, you see problems. Why are you there? What are you solving? What problem are you solving? You solved the problem of the caliphate. Now what problem are you solving? Now you're getting into a problem. So leave, you know, just cut bait and go. And that's what he did. And here also, you know, I mean, it, it, it was a, did it, I, I think at the end of the day, it was the right, it was the right move to make. Those 50 soldiers would have been slaughtered, you know, if they had stayed there because Erdogan said, I'm coming in, you know. And that's the other thing that I think is very important here because what we're seeing now for the first time in a real way that the American people are saying, I mean, obviously we've been saying it for a long time, is just how incredibly hostile Turkey is. And I think that if people pay attention to that, and Trump is, I think, here too, you know, he's giving too much credit to Erdogan, and I'm not quite clear what he's trying to do here, and I don't like it. But the clearer that the American people become on the menace that Erdogan represents to their strategic interests, the easier it will be to start doing belatedly, 20 years late, the kind of stuff that the Pentagon should have been doing already beginning in December 2002 in terms of distancing the United States from Erdogan, maybe weakening him at home, replace, helping to replace him with others, whatever it happens to be, or replacing Turkey. It's a big piece of real estate. It's hard to figure out a way to do that. But, you know, they've had 20 years to think about it, and it's come, you know, it's well nigh time that the United States starts reassessing its alliance with Turkey. And again, this is something that made very clear by the way that Erdogan has been behaving in Syria. So I think that's also good. Wow. All right. Quick cut away from the global Middle East now to provincial Israel. We still don't have a government. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is being hounded by legal issues, the state prosecutors. What is going on with the state prosecutors and all these cases against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? So we'll do this briefly. Um, but look, you know, like I was saying in the earlier segment, you know, we have a situation in the left, in Israel, in the United States, in Europe, in Britain. You saw it with the with the Brexit thing, where um, all of the rhetoric that we hear emanating from leftists about freedom, about uh, rule of law. Um, peace, they're all window dressing, they're all fig leaves, and they're all there to disguise a naked ambition to power, for power's sake. Not for the sake of uh, increasing equality in a society or, or, or bringing about peace in the world. It's about 
acquiring and retaining power and destroying your enemy. And viewing politics not as a competition between two uh, compete, you know, between two different outlooks and governing philosophies, but rather as a blood sport. That the goal that your side, your side's goal, is to annihilate your enemy, to annihilate him, not to view him as a political rival, but to view him as 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 an object of, of venal hatred and of an unquenchable thirst to destruction. So, you know, we see that in the United States, we see that here, and the place that it's being expanded the most is among our state prosecution, which since the mid-1990s has been using the power to prosecute politicians as a means to erode uh, the political system in Israel um, and to make it impossible for right-wing governments in Israel to govern. You know, and so what we're seeing now, you know, if you look at the, the Netanyahu cases against him, they're all about one thing or the two major cases, one is just, you know, stupid, but the two sort of major cases are about uh, bribery, alleged bribery, uh, and the bribery is not that Netanyahu received cash payments from businessmen who wanted him to give them uh, regulatory redress. He, they claim that he sought or, or was offered positive coverage by media organs in Israel uh, and that he was supposed to, in exchange, give them uh, regulatory benefits, okay? And um, the concept that relations between the media and politicians are inherently corrupt and criminal, that contacts between politicians and media organizations, reporters, editors, uh, media owners, are inherently uh, criminal, and that they are all uh, all raise suspicion of bribery, that being offered, being accepted, quid pro quos. Now, all of this is a, is a is a major assault, obviously, on Netanyahu, and an attempt to criminalize uh, his actions after the fact by introducing this concept of bribery that doesn't exist either in Israeli law or in the law of any democratic country on the face of the planet. But the two major cases against Bibi, uh, against Prime Minister Netanyahu, are predicated on the criminalization of government media relations. And when you do that, you're basically making every editorial meaning, every article about a politician published in any newspaper or on any news broadcast suspect. And uh, and perhaps criminal. It makes every journalist a potential criminal suspect for writing or for speaking out in a manner that provides positive coverage to one politician or negative uh, uh, coverage to another politician that redounds to the benefit of the first politician. So that all coverage, all news is suddenly a potential crime. That is the legal theory that the cases against Netanyahu are based on. So it's stunning, right? Now, all of this came out. Now, now the, sorry, first of all, the state prosecution led by state prosecutor Shai Nitzan, who has a long record of politicization and abuse of his office to uh, advance the fortunes of his political 
allies on the left and to criminalize the Israeli right. Um, so he's been the one pushing this outrageous legal theory in Israel. And, that, and uh, he, his theory has to be embraced and accepted by Attorney General Abichai Mandelblit. And if Mandelblit accepts this, then he will indict Netanyahu on these charges of bribery or breach of public trust or what have you and these various things that, that they've concocted. So all of this seemed like it was going along fine until the last day of Netanyahu's pre-indictment hearing, which is another invention of the legal fraternity to give them quasi-judicial power in Israel, where they say, okay, we're going to put together all the charges, but we're going to give the suspect the ability to plead his case, not before a judge, but before the attorney general. And then the attorney general gets to decide whether to indict him or not at the basis so that they, they've built up this quasi-judicial proceeding that doesn't even go to a judge, but whether or not to indict. Why? Because indictment rates, because prosec- uh, in, uh, conviction rates are so high in Israel. So it really is all about an indictment. So they uh, have been dominating. You said we don't have a government. Well, how can we have a government? Because since um, last March, when Mandelblit took the unprecedented move of publishing at the height of an election campaign uh, the uh, suggested charges against Netanyahu, um, he and his people have been the only real political actors in Israel. They have been calling the shots. They have been deciding, you know, uh, uh, the outcome in many in many cases of the elections been blocking the the uh, formation of governments and today the reason that there are no coalition negotiations to speak of going on to form a government after the second elections took place is because really the only political issue that's on the books today is what's going to happen to the indictments of Netanyahu is he going to be indicted or not so it seemed as though it was an open and shut case until like the last half hour of Netanyahu's pre-indictment hearing, was a, which in and of itself was a joke. It was four days of marathon hearing that went for 16 hours a day. And it's fundamentally unserious to say that you're, 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 you're seriously considering claims when you've been sitting down for 16 hours straight. You can't. Nobody can function at that level. And, and Avichai Mandelblit is no different from anybody else. So it was a joke to begin with. The last half hour of the last day of the hearing, they brought in uh, two very senior American jurists, uh, trial attorney Nat Lewin and Professor Avi Bell, who presented a brief that they had put together with Alan Dershowitz and some other senior American attorneys that showed uh, that argued before Mandelblit that you know there's no precedent in the world of a democracy embracing Nitsan's legal theory, that there's something inherently criminal about the relationships between the media and politicians, and you can't put uh, investigators into editorial meetings, and that's what's happening. Because if you do that, if he embraces Shai Nitsan's theory, then you end democracy because there's no freedom of press because you know before I write a column, I'm going to have to worry that when I write something supportive of a prime minister who I support, um, that I'm going to be called into an interrogation room in the, in the police department and say, well, you know, why did you write that? What were you thinking? Now, it's true I didn't commit any crime, but so what? I have to hire a lawyer. I have to be worried about every word that I write. I have to worry that if I have any contact with Netanyahu or his uh, spokespeople, that it's going to be held against me as proof that they must have offered me something in exchange for good coverage. It doesn't matter, you know, 
that that's untrue because you're under criminal investigation. You deal with it. You're in the hot seat, not them, for doing this to you. So what happened this week is that apropos of nothing, they opened up this criminal probe of all of Netanyahu's senior spokespeople, four of them, claiming that in August they uh, harassed a state witness. Momo Filber, the former, uh, Netanyahu's former director general of the Ministry of Communications, who the police uh, coerced into becoming a state uh, witness against Netanyahu in one of these fake bribery cases. And what they did was they, I mean, it was horrible, you know. They, they sent uh, like this uh, uh, jalopy outside of his apartment building and they were playing, you know, uh, recordings, uh, Filber, don't go against the prime minister, and they filmed it. And it was supposed to be in an, an elections thing. I never saw it at the time. I never saw it. I mean, it isn't like, you know, the godfather, you know, or you want to you wanna intimidate a witness, so you send a decapitated horse's head to his house and you put it in his bed so that he'll wake up the next morning and see it lying next to him, you know, that would be, you know, a fairly clear-cut case of intimidating a witness, right? right? But here, it wasn't. And not only that, Filber never filed a complaint against them. So there was no complaint. And then all of a sudden, on Sunday, wake up to the, to the news that uh, Netanyahu's senior press aides are under criminal investigation, that their cell phones were seized, that yesterday, two more of them were placed under investigation and their cell phones were seized. Now, why would you seize their cell phones? Because all of their communications, all of Netanyahu's indirect communications, and direct communications with every journalist who covers him in phones. Israel is on those phones. You get stuff on every editor, every journalist, every newspaper, every news organization in Israel, because these are the conduits between the prime minister of Israel and the media. You take all of their cell phones, and then you go on a fisting op uh, expedition. So what you're doing, in effect, is showing that the warning that Bell and Lewin and their colleagues gave to Mandelblit is absolutely right. This is the most profound assault on journalism in Israeli history. And the thing to me that's most disturbing about it, I mean, there are so many things that are disturbing about it. The most disturbing thing is that it's happened already. But the second most disturbing thing that's happened is that you hear all of these uh, reporters, senior journalists in Israel, on the left, of course, all of them, just like in America, supporting this. I mean, are you kidding me? How can you possibly support this? This is the most profound assault on freedom of speech and freedom of the press in Israeli history. And we've had a long list of things that were assaults on freedom wow. of the press in Israeli history. But here you have the senior journalists, you know, Raviv Drucker, Baruch Kra, Aviad Glickman, and others going on record saying, oh, this is totally justified. I mean, they were harassing a government witness, and you can't have that. That's three years in the slammer. You know, you got it. You got to investigate. Oh, and there's nothing wrong with them seizing the cell phone. They don't care. That's the thing, which brings me back to my original point, that all of this talk about freedom of the press, all of this talk about democracy and the rule of law, that you hear the prosecutors making and justif justifying making up statutes out of the clear blue sky, you know, to criminalize a prime minister after the fact for actions that were clearly not criminal when he conducted them, if they are today. In the name of the rule of law and anti-corruption and these 
journalists who are supporting these fundamentally anti-democratic actions by the state prosecutor in the name of fighting corruption and the rule of law and clean government, they don't care about any of those things. Not one of those things. It's all a lie. They care about seizing and retaining political power and destroying their political opponents. I guarantee you that if I or one of my colleagues among the above right-wing reporters, you know, identified with the right wing, or even non-politically identified writers who have written in support of Netanyahu, are carted in before interrogators and asked about the basis of our reporting or of our columns or whatever, that all of these journalists will side with the interrogators against us. And that, to me, is really disheartening. Because again, it, it's just one more myth that there's some sort of brotherhood of journalists, that they care about freedom of the press. They don't. They care about being the only press. They actually support denying freedom of speech to their political opponents, to journalists who don't see the world the way that they do, because they trust that the same mafia that's going and seizing the cell phones of the prime minister's advisors who have everybody's information on them because they talk to everybody all the time. That's their job. They're spokespeople for the prime minister of Israel. They know that even if they got down on their knees and they begged for an exclusive interview with Netanyahu and promised the world in exchange for Netanyahu giving them an exclusive, then they won't be investigated for it that they won't be harassed by the prosecution and by police investigators for it. The only people they know that are going to be persecuted for those kinds of totally professional contacts are people on the right. And, and so you know that's what's happening here. You see it happening in the United States. You see it happening in Britain. And you know this is really Unfortunately, it has been for many years, and it is very much today, the fight of our lives. We have to curb this politicization of democracy. That is, this criminal, criminal, not politicization, that's fine. Democracy should all be politics. This criminalization of democracy that's going on here, that's going on in America, that's going on in Britain, that's going on all over the world, because that's what the left is about. They are not about, and unfortunately I say this, but it's true and it's borne out everywhere. They're not about democratic norms. They're not about upholding a system of laws where everybody is equal before the law. They're about one law for me and one law for my political rivals. One judiciary for me and one for them. One prosecution for me, one for them. One freedom of the, of, of the press for me, a different one for them. And you can't have a dual system in a democracy and, re and pretend that you're still a democracy. You can have one system of justice for everybody. And if you have anything else, then what you're seeing is the destruction of democracy. And you know that's why I've been against, for years, all of this anti-corruption stuff. Because I understand this is not about fighting corruption. Mm -hmm. It's about seizing and retaining power. And we have to take that back. We can't allow this to continue. It's past 
past the danger zone. We are inside of it. We're fighting for the survival of the freedom of the press in Israel. And what needs to be done in Israel to stop this politicization of the justice you know, the system, worst state, th state the prosecutors? The worst thing about it all is that because of the, the progression of this, today, unless you have a major fight that I don't know at what point it can even be resolved, because we're not going away, there's one man in this country, in the whole country, who can stop this tomorrow. And he, he can stop it tomorrow. Or he can take an ax to what's left of the political system of Israel. And that, unfortunately, is the Attorney General. Because he has sole, he has sole uh, uh, power to decide whether or not to indict Netanyahu on charges that represent one thing and one thing only, the criminalization of Israeli democracy. And if he sides with his attorneys, with his state prosecutors, and decides that politics is inherently a criminal enterprise, then he will be the signatory of the death warrant of Israeli democracy. And if he throws those charges out and says that in a democracy you cannot criminalize press relations with politicians, that that is protected speech and communication. And we respect the independence of the media and their ability to call the shots as they see them. And even if we disagree with them, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt because our very democracy rests on that. Then you'll save Israeli democracy. But it's crazy that this one unelected man who was appointed under duress. The government appointed him because the, the, the state prosecution itself didn't allow them to choose anybody other than him. So he was forced on them. He gets to decide all alone. And right now, the battle line is about who gets to convince him. Who is he going to listen to? Is he going to listen to uh, the forces of democracy, or is he going to listen to the forces of autocracy? And unfortunately, that's what it hitches on. You know, if he goes and indicts Netanyahu, then we uh, get into a, a prolonged, protracted battle. But he can end this tomorrow if he just closes these cases down. Wow. All right, look, guys, we've had such unbelievable information from Carolyn this morning. Thank you so much. Last final good point. One, 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 one final short question on a good on good news. Yesterday, the medical school, the first medical school of Judea and Samaria, opened up at Ariel University with U.S. Ambassador David Friedman there for the, for, for for the occasion. How do you feel? Why? What, what's so historic about this? What's so historic about it? First of all, we needed another medical school, so I think it's fantastic. We don't have enough spots, medical education for Israeli medical students. We have so many of our best uh, candidates for, for uh, doctors to become MDs going to Italy and other places to get their MDs because there just aren't enough spots in Israeli universities. So first of all, it fills a critical need inside of Israel for a, a new medical facility. And second of all, yeah, you see in practice the normalization of Israeli rule in Judea and Samaria, which is so critical for the national security and well-being of this country. I mean, when you have David Friedman, the U.S. ambassador, going to Samaria, to Ariel, for the opening ceremony of the medical faculty, you know, you're seeing a total, again, thank God, a renunciation of the Obama administration's policy of effectively 
boycotting all Jews who lived beyond the 1949 armistice lines. If you recall, when, when Obama came to Israel in 2014 or 13, um, he had this uh, speech before Israeli students. Mm -hmm. And they invited Israeli students from every university in Israel except one, the Ari. university, Ariel University in Samaria, because the unofficial but very clear policy of the Obama administration was to deny the basic civil rights of Jews uh, to live, to breathe, while Israeli in Judea and Samaria and unified Jerusalem. So I think, you know, to a very great degree, it's a testament to the determination of the Trump administration to end uh, Obama's legacy of contempt towards Israel, which again we saw when, in that picture that he had himself taken with the soles of his shoes up on his desk while he was talking about the telephone with Netanyahu. This is, this is a great thing. It does just like you know, Trump's uh, photograph that he posted on Twitter of the, of the dog that he said destroyed, you know, killed Baghdadi. Here to, and, and so ending this concept that you have to be deferential to your worst enemies and contemptuous of your best allies. Here you see the Trump administration in one day, basically, uh, the al-Baghdadi hit and the opening of the uh, faculty in Ariel, you see them taking a knife to this legacy of contempt for allies and deferential treatment of American enemies and, and reversing it 180 degrees. So I think it's a fantastic thing. Amazing. Carolyn, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm glad we had a piece of good news at the end. Definitely things to work forward on and challenges. Thank you everyone for watching. It should be a good I, day. Yeah, and I think just one last thing. Yeah. I think that what we, what we saw in Ariel is also a testament to the fact and, and to the outrage among, uh, you know, on the right in Israel to what's going on with Netanyahu is that you see the battle finally after all of these years of the Republicans not wanting to fight the Democrats and going along to get along and the Israeli right being too afraid to stand up to this uh, prosecutorial uh, malfeasance since 1997. You see people finally joining this battle and saying, enough is enough. We're not going to allow you to take our democracy away. We're not going to allow you to take away the, the basic underpinnings of our society. We're not going to allow you to, to confuse us into thinking that our friends are our enemies and our enemies are our friends. We're fighting back and we're taking our countries back. And I think that that's really important. I think it's that you're right. I mean, we, I've been talking about the terrible aspects of it, but I think it's important that you raise this uh, this uh, Ariel thing, because that's an aspect that shows that, yes, every day there are good people like Ambassador Friedman and like President Trump and like Prime Minister Netanyahu and like the, the media in Israel, the right-wing outlets in the media like Israel Ayom that, that I write for today, that are fighting back against this thing. And I think that, you know, we should be heartened by that and we should be redoubling our efforts to ensure that people who want power to rule over others and to destroy their political opponents rather than to simply work with them and find common ground for the benefit of all people in their societies, I think that this is a battle of our times and I'm so glad that we finally joined it. Amen. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Everyone, thank you so much. Make it a great day. Signing off from the ancestral and eternal homeland of the Jewish people here in Israel, the Judean Hills. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.